Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Rasmus Granfeld Winter, Professor of Humanities at the University of California, Santa Cruz. His new book, When Maps Become the World, is just out from the University of Chicago Press. There are maps of the Earth's landmasses, the universe, the ocean floors, human migration, the human brain. Maps are so integral to how we interact with the world that we sometimes forget that they are not the world. In his new book, Winter considers how maps get made, used, and abused, and how processes and problems from cartography can be found in the ways we create and use scientific theories. He shows how what he calls pernicious reification, or taking the map or model for what it represents, can arise in science, and argues for contextual objectivity regarding scientific theories, a form of pluralism between realism and constructivism about the external world. The maps and drawings filling the book both illustrate Winter's discussion as well as the power that maps and theories have to shape the way we think about the world. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Rasmus Granfeit Winter. I cannot pronounce your Danish name. Uh, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you, Carrie. <laughs> um, I'm really happy to be talking with you about your book. Um, and uh, before we begin, uh, talking about when maps become the world. Um, uh, maybe you could say a word a bit, a bit about yourself, um, your background, how you came to philosophy, um, how you came to write the book. I mean, I noticed that you've also, like myself, spent some time, a lot, lot more time in, in Caracas, where I, I lived in Chacaito and then Caudimare, you know, if, which should remind you of various neighborhoods there. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, tell us yes, a bit about yourself. Thank you, Carrie, and thank you for having me on the show. I am a philosopher of science. That's how I think of myself primarily. I, as you um, mentioned, I grew up in uh, Venezuela with Danish parents, and I moved, I, I first set foot in the U.S. at age 18, and so I wasn't, I wasn't familiar at all with the U.S. And um, I've been moving around a bit, too. And uh, I have always been interested in philosophy. I remember since I was conscious, basically, since around five or six years of age, I've always been absolutely obsessed with um, the relation between science and scientific questions about why things fall and why is water wet and all that. And, um, and with the insect life around me in Caracas, and I always found myself asking how and why together. So I can't, last thing I'll say is I've always, I've never been able to separate philosophical from scientific questions and 
I still don't, and I mean, become even more convinced with time that they are actually inseparable. Kind of interesting. So, yeah. Um, uh, so the the book, in a way, is a compilation of your own thoughts and travels. Um, you know, there are lots of very great illustrations and yes. everything. You know, throughout, which. Unfortunately, you know, can't can't be in the podcast, but uh, they certainly do illustrate a lot of the points and make it very vivid, um, uh, both the power and the limitations of maps and mapping, which is you know what the what the book is about, as well as what thank you the analogy that you uh, draw between map making and map using and scientific theorizing and using scientific theories. So what, I guess to begin, what uh, what is map thinking, right? I mean, what do you you call map thinking? You have a particular view there of what that is. What is that? First of all, thank you for a very nice description of some of the basic elements of the book. I it's obvious that you read it pretty carefully, and uh, so I really appreciate that. Then you ask me, what is map thinking? Um, it's, I think. Uh, what I myself am doing, what we are actually, let me correct that, what you and me are doing together in this podcast is itself a map of the book. So um, it's abstracted and idealized itself. And I don't think anything can replace, and now I speak both to you and to the listener, but nothing can replace even just perusing the book, just holding it in your hand and just looking through it, even just at the illustrations and maybe skimming it in places. So having said that, um, I do think this conversation is one of many maps that could be made of the book. And I think map thinking is a way of combining thinking and doing of representing the world. How do we represent the world? We can represent the world, it's very common to humans, in terms of space or spatial thinking. And maps needn't be spatial. And I know, I know, um, I hope we'll probably get into some of this issue. But primitively, as it were, map thinking is the spatial need and cognitive ability to represent the world around us in a spatial visual manner. Mm -hmm. But it, maybe I should stop there. Well, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really important because a lot of the, you know, different maps that you talk about towards the end of the book are, are not, you know, at least my own view is that's, that's not necessarily spatial. Um, but a lot of, you know, our, original maps are, you know, are spatial. So I'm just, it kind of raises the question about our, you know, our cognitive, you know, natural cognitive apparatus or something in terms of thinking in terms of the structure of the world or of anything. Um, and then thinking spatially about that. Um, are there non-spatial sorts of maps um, so I think there are, and, but maybe that's putting the cart before the horse. Um, okay. I, I know there's a lot of work. 
maybe, maybe let me try, let me try to uh, reframe this slightly, which also helps get at why I even wrote this book. Perfect. I thought there was a beautiful opportunity to combine philosophical discussion and uh, debate around scientific representation and scientific modeling to a whole other domain, call it very generally cartography. Uh Now, I suspect that many, possibly many listeners of this podcast um, might not be too familiar with the field of cartography, but it is an a thriving um, domain, to not call it a discipline or to not call it a paradigm, but it's a thriving domain of um, studies, of historical studies, of social sociological studies, even of some philosophical study. However, I felt that there was such an obvious gap or link to be made between the way so many philosophers of science, I'm just going to mention a few, and this is not intended to be an exhaustive list by any means, but people like Thomas Kuhn, Helen Longino, Philip Kitcher, uh, Nelson Goodman, I, I, I'm jumping a bit in the generations, and some of my, uh, some of my uh, colleague, conte- contemporary work too, etc. Um, and they write so they use maps constantly as an analogy to theory and models and to the process of theorizing and of modeling and then i thought yeah but they i mean with all due respect but they 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 rarely go into any detail about what a map actually is and what do the cartographers actually say mm-hmm. so for kind of five years while I was doing my teaching and, you know, my other research and this and that, but I basically did a self-study of cartography. And I got to know some cartographers too, who were also very helpful, um, some more than others, in um, providing me with reading tips, with, with discussion. I had some interviews and I just thought that why not link philosophy of science to cartography? It seems both can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's that's really that's really illuminating because you're right. I mean, you come across that sort of map analogy a lot, right? Not just in philosophy of science, but maybe particularly there. Um, and yet, what cartographers do is is not part of the. Um, is not part of what's being used. So what is it that cartographers, so let's get into a little bit of the, the process yes. of, of cartography, right? Um, you know, what is it that's Great. done there that makes map making really worthwhile as an analogy? That's a, that's a, a brilliant question, Carrie. Thank you. Um, cartographers have thought long and hard about how do we calibrate how do we calibrate our units and our dimensions how do we collect and manage data what kinds of instruments what kinds of techniques do we use in collecting this data and once we have this database once we have this collection of data points then how do we portray it in some kind of representation 
How do we, they love to talk about generalization. How do we cartograph, how do we cartographically generalize? And when you asked me before, and I think we'll continue circling around this question, what is map thinking? One way that map thinking, even setting aside the possibly more spatial domain of maps compared to scientific models, mm-hmm. protocols or practices of cartographic generalization include the following simplification, symbolization, classification, exaggeration, selection. And when we say selection in cartography, we mean both scale and map projection. Mm -hmm. So these processes of simplification, symbolization, and so forth have obvious analogies between the cartographic domain and the scientific domain. And what I found thoroughly illuminating when I was reading the cartography, the cartographers was I sometimes would like smack my face and just say, or my, whatever you say in English, my forehead. And I would say, wow, this is a much better, um, much better account of abstraction than anything I have ever seen in the philosophical literature. Because these people are doing, they're worrying about abstraction all the time. And I think, unfortunately, even though there are some promising accounts of of abstraction and idealization in the philosophical literature, I I feel sometimes it gets too in its own head. It's not really like too applied. It's not really understanding what actually happens in actual scientific domains or cartographic domains. And and I'll stop after this. What I felt was the case with the cartographers is at least some of them really do a beautiful job at kind of glossing, uh, giving a gloss and giving a set of, um, of highlights, bullet points of the different stages and types of abstraction. Huh. Interesting. So, um, so these kind of will go into different kinds of maps, right? Well, you know, you have these basic processes, yes. you know, abstraction, yes. simplification, the selection of the scale projection. I mean, for the spatial ones in, you know, as the paradigm. Um, Correct. And these come up with, you know, different, f- different types of maps, right? So, what are the different types of maps yes. then, and how does this affect the analogy to scientific theories? Another great question. Um, I, I understand that everyone is going to have. Um, let me let me say that I'm also very much, as I hope is well, I think is kind of obvious. A little bit, I'm quite pragmatically oriented about many of these things, and I'm also quite the pluralist about abstraction and representation. And I accept that there are multiple ways of understanding pretty much any point. And so I I also want to say, because I know some of the, you know, I'm grateful for anyone who bothers to write a review of my book. And I will say in the last four months or so, plus minus, I have come across maybe a dozen. I don't, I, I, I lost count by now but a little bit like a dozen reviews. And at some point you kind of stop reading them because you, I don't know, you just get a little like nervous or, you know, 
you have other things going on in your life. Um, I would say most of them have been pretty positive and very helpful and insightful and helped me even see things like, oh, I didn't see that before. And there's been a few that haven't been particularly positive, and I accept that. Um, but so I guess I want to say that because one thing that I think kind of maybe I haven't gotten across so well is that I didn't write this book to say that the only possible analogy between, uh, you know, for how to understand scientific models and, and theories was a mapping analogy. I, maybe it sounds like I say that sometimes, but, you know, you're, it's a little bit, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, if you don't make your argument strong enough, then someone is going to say, oh, you know, you're not really clear here, and I don't really know why you're then arguing it. But if you make your argument too strong, then people will say, oh, but then you think this is the entire world. And you think like theories have to be maps and theories are maps. No, I think it's one useful metaphor for understanding theories and models. Hardly the only one. You cannot, I've thought about two others I'd like to mention. A scientific model is also like a book, the book of nature, going back to Galileo at least. And then there's the constant idea that uh, theories and models are like networks with mm-hmm. uh, combining different elements. And, and there are other, uh, other metaphors. Um, so I, I just want to get that a little bit. I almost want to say I want to get that, 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 that misinterpretation out of the way. I don't intend to say that models are maps or that um, this is the only useful metaphor. Even so, you asked me, what are the different forms of maps? And again, this is arguable, but I do think that I've, at least I framed the book as if there were five kinds of maps. Um, some of them spatial, some, some of them more general, but they all form map analogies. And at the risk, uh, I don't want to you know, get too much into the weeds, but for anyone interested, you can turn to page 36 of my book. And there I have what I think is a useful figure showing the different map analogies and the different kinds of maps. And I'll just mention them. Literal map, extreme scale map, state space map, causal map, and analogous map. And if I can just say one sentence for each, a literal map is just that. It's like a geological map or a geographical map. It's a literal map. An extreme scale map, think of a map of the universe or a genetic map, which in the first case, you take the enormous and you make it on a page, say. In the second case, you take the tiny and you put it on a big case. Sorry, on a page. They're both physical spatial maps. A state space map, Think of the phase diagrams or the state space diagrams, say in thermodynamics. You might remember from your high school days when you had to draw a little a PV pressure, volume, temperature graph for the three states of matter, solid, liquid, gas. That gives you a state space map in the space of PV and T. And I know it's arguable. But I argue that so much of science, since the laws of science can be drawn in the state space, as someone like Bas van Frassen correctly, I think, 
makes has spent much of his career arguing in the semantic view of theories, think, I think of that as a map. It's a physical map in a state space. I know it's arguable. We can argue about that. Causal maps are, they're kind of networks where you causes show effects in boxes. Think of it as um, Judah Pearl, who works on uh, causal diagrams. Mm-hmm. An analogous map is not spatial at all. It's just, it's an analogy. And again, I'm, so I'm happy to speak about any of these mm-hmm. and just returning to a point, And I promise I'll stop after this returning <laughs> to a point you made early on when you asked, are all maps, um, aren't all maps. Well, I think you implied aren't all maps pretty much primarily spatial. And there's got to be a lot of theories that aren't spatial. Mm. Yes, there's a sense in which you are right, Carrie. There's also a sense in which um, there's some, for example, in cartography, there's map art, or there are cognitive maps, there are personal maps, there's a whole, there's all kinds of subdomains of cartography, where we're not talking about literal cartographic maps anywhere, we're talking about when people wake up after a dream, and they draw a cognitive map. Or they draw a cognitive map of where do they see themselves being in three years. Or um, they, there's a lot of map art. And there are a lot of interesting volumes on how mapping gets used in art, in the art worlds. Um, so those are kind of spatial, but not really. And I know it. I'm not sure I would want to analogize some of that to science. But part of me wants to say, why not? At least at minimum, it shows that not all maps need to be, shall I say, um, like literally or fundamentally spatial. Mm-hmm. Space itself is a very loose category. I'll start right. there. Right. Um, well, I mean, you've been using word, you know, map model, uh, you know, structure. Uh, and yes. then, of course, as you mentioned, network, right? Um, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not that we can get into all the detail of those things, but um, it seems like there's a, a sense of map, which is the what you call the literal map, you know, the, the spatial map, the ones that you, you know, sort of use to navigate. Um, right. uh, and then there's a more general sense of map where it's, it's essentially just a structure of some sort, something relating the various elements um, mm-hmm. and so I just, mm-hmm. uh, I'm just wondering, um, I can see where there's analogy of a, of scientific, you know, theorizing to us, to the literal map, to the spatial mm-hmm. map, but it doesn't seem like it's an analogy once you get to the more general sense of map. It's just, that's just like a structure and it's not an analogy. That's just what it is. I see. That's interesting. Um, that's a new thought to me. Thank mm. you. Um, well, maybe let me put it as a question then. Um, how do you distinguish between, say, a map and uh, then a model? Because a lot of people, a lot of people in philosophy science, you know, modeling is a big thing and there's all the elements of, right. <laughs> you know, again, of abstraction of and representing and then, you know, you know so there's yes. a number of, of elements that are common to both of those. But of course, you know, you're not bringing in the the sort of more concrete, maybe 
aspects of a map when you talk about a model. Um, so, well, you can. Yeah. Uh, so, the, a, a, excellent question. Um, I mean, I, I did write the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on quote the structure of scientific theories end quote. So that's my entry. I spent a lot of time on it. Um, as so many of us have done, and what a great resource in general the SCP is. Um, I spend a lot of time in that entry talking about the syntactic view. I mean, it's basically organized into what I call, uh, not me, syntactic view, semantic view. Mm. And then what I, following, I think, many people, and it resonates with many people's analysis, call now a pragmatic view of theories. So syntactic, semantic, pragmatic view. And I don't think, again, in pluralistic spirit, I think they all point at different aspects. Syntactic view is the structure. I mean, syntactic view really wants to try to find the sort of internal structure to a model. And I understand that a structure needn't be spatial. I agree. It's not. Um, But then... Uh, what is the difference between a model and a map? Again, because of my pragmatist or pragmatic leanings, I am a little more interested in what the processes of building and emergence and constructing the model or the map. And then how does the model or map get used and abused? For me, one of the central to me personally, I think the most, I don't know want to say the most important point, but one of the most important points in the book is this concept of pernicious reification. Because I think it's just all too obvious that whether we're doing economics and economic modeling, modeling in the social sciences, modeling about heritability in genetics and using analysis of variance, that there is often a conflation or confusion of model and world, and we fall in love with our model. And then we think that that model is fully explanatory. And I'm not saying everyone does this. I'm not saying it's like, you know, a universal sin. But I do think, I mean, I think it's pretty evident. It happens a lot, and it can lead to issues. And that's why also in the book, based in cartography, I come up with ideas like, let's try to integrate many models, or let's try to, in- let's try to look at all the assumptions um, in what I call assumption archaeology within a model and a map. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm not quite answering your question about structure, but I, I think it's I just think it's a really interesting and it would take probably longer than we have to talk about the relation between structure and world as a mapping relation, because then I know there's also policy in the word map. And I know that. And, And I spend a good amount of time, for example, in chapter six, when I look at physics and mathematics. Um, in mathematics, maps get you the word map and mapping gets used as this kind of relation between two structures, sort of independently of a world. And 
but but I think there's an interesting set of issues about mapping is a relation and and uh, cartographers also have something to say about this and possibly the most influential mathematician of the 19th century Carl Friedrich Gauss he started off his career and life as a cartographer and I don't think that's accidental hmm. um uh, so he worried about curved surfaces. He worried about how do you map warped um, two-dimensional, two, well, curved uh, two-dimensional surfaces onto a flat plane, just like in a map projection. Mm. And and the very concept of function and of mathematical function, Gauss gave a kind of new life in part through the cartographic influence. Again, I'm not saying this is the only influence, uh, et cetera, but, but there's a lot of cartographic resonances in, in philosophy of science and in the formal sciences. Hmm. So you mentioned, uh, I, I think, pernicious reification uh, just, just now. And so I, I just wanted to get, that was mm-hmm. sort of where I wanted to mm-hmm. uh kind of press on a bit uh what what is that um and you you know you you yes. mentioned you know there's a you know part of it results from what you call universalizing and part of it results from what you call narrowing right which seem yes. to be like opposite sorts of things but um what is that what what's the problem what's the failure right um, universal. Uh, so I don't see them as opposites. Let me just mm-hmm. try to briefly explain, although I can see why you say that. Uh, and again, <laughs> thank you for the conversation. And it, it, it really is just, I, I know I've already said this, but it is a little bit like a, a, a mini map of my book. And, and I don't think, it, I don't think I can really do justice to, and I'm sure pretty much every author says this, which is fine, <laughs> but like there, nothing can, can, um, can substitute the reader's reading. But anyway, universalizing, I take it as you use the structure or the map or the, the content of your theory or model to try to explain everything within its domain. Personally, I like to use the example of Richard Dawkins with The Selfish Gene. This is a book I both love to hate and hate <laughs> to love. Selfish Gene for, I don't know, maybe, maybe people know about it. It's, it's a book that was written in the mid 70s and um, it has different dates depending on various editions and this and that. And it's been reprinted several times. And I read it at a relatively young age, I would say in my early 20s, and I've reread it several times. I never really shared the perspective of what he was trying to do in that book. I much, I have other, yeah, I do like Richard Lewinton, may he rest in power. Um, And I like, um, for example, James Lovelock with Gaia Theory. Those were books, uh, Levinson Lewinton's Dialectical Biologist. Those were books that were much more influential on me. But I did see the power of how Dawkins is writing. The Selfish Gene is a story, and it would take too long, and I'm my next book is on genetics. It's called Our Genes. It's with Cambridge. It's in production. Um, and, and, a lo- and I spend some time trying to unravel the Fisherian view, R.A. Fisher, which is really the view that uh, Richard Dawkins takes in The Selfish Gene. Why am I mentioning this now? 
the selfish gene I take as the most in philosophy of biology, which is, I guess, my core field with together with philosophy of science. The selfish gene is the core, is, the, I think, the most extreme example of a pernicious reification where you take what's called an additive view, an averaged view, that every gene has a certain effect. You're kind of ignoring epistasis or cross-gene effects. Um, you're, you believe you can tell a step-by-step, unit-by-unit story where every gene has a certain allele which has the most explanatory power and is selected for. And then you can sort of uh, give this full story of evolution on adaptationist terms, selectionist terms, in a step-by-step, locus-by-locus explanation. Mm -hmm. I take that as both universalizing, in that you have taken a model, and you believe you can explain all of evolution. You can, you can explain human evolution. Dawkins even thinks he can explain human cultural evolution in that book in terms of uh, memes rather than genes. And it's also narrowing because Dawkins is ignoring, for example, uh, views about population structure or that there can be, um, there can be group selection I, philosophers of biology have published for over 40 years on these issues. I've also published on it, so I I'm not going to get into it. But it's selfish gene theory is both an example of universalizing and narrowing your, um, your theoretical scope down to a few essential concepts and then believing it can explain everything of human evolution. I see. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, so you contrast that with the view that you support, which you call um, contextual objectivity, which you also describe as falling somewhere between, I think, realism and constructivism. I mean, that's obviously been a kind of a theme that's lingering in the background. So let's bring it into the foreground. Um, yes. what, what is, you know, contextual objectivity and how does that kind of steer between the realism and the constructivism. Thank you. Um, so I take the flip side of pernicious reification to be what I call contextual objectivity. In order to develop this concept, I built on work by Helen Longino and Bas van Frassen. Um, and again, I don't want to get into the weeds um, right here. Um, Longino has a view she calls conformation as opposed to the usual standard philosophical view or philosophical concept in philosophy of science of confirmation. So confirmation has typically been taken to be how do we go about testing our theories and models to make sure that they're actually empirically adequate and that thus they can be used for explanatory and predictive purposes. Now, it's not that Longinot disagrees, nor that I disagree with this as a concept. I mean, it's important to have your data correct. It's important to also be an empiricist. However, the, 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 the slight issue is that 
there's many ways to interpret data. There are there might even be an irreducible plurality of models that are each empirically adequate, but that focus on different features, different uh, parts of the data. And especially in, say, genetics or biology more generally, there's, there's often a plurality of models and I mean, I've kind of become convinced after publishing and working on this for over 20 years and reading a lot of interesting people, and I love many of my colleagues' work on this, um, but there just seems to be an irreducible plurality because biological data is so rich in interpretive possibility. And so contextual objectivity is the idea that Yes, you can be objective, but maybe only in your corner of the world, <laughs> that you can explain some features of a very complex set of processes in biology, but then we need other models, other modeling strategies under different paradigms. And rather than just try to self-impose your view, like population genetics can't explain everything, but nor can evolutionary developmental biology nor can cultural theory, nor can ecology. We need all these disciplines with their own modeling strategies to explain very rich nature and set of processes. So contextual objectivity is comparing your model to other closely related models and realizing the power of your model, but then also where does it like butt elbows? Where does it not quite explain everything? And then there might be a, a close cousin, another model that does a much better job at explaining different aspects of the data. So, yeah. Um, and the, the problem that always arises at this point is when you get conflicts, not just like when, when yes. you know, essentially when, you know, each you know, modeler or mapper doesn't doesn't stay in their own lane, so to speak, <laughs> uh, and not just in a matter of universalizing, um, but in a matter of where they say contradictory things about what appear to be the same phenomena. Correct. No, yeah. that's a very good point you're making. I think that that's a brilliant point because I think often what we take to be conflicts, and often what we take to be one person's got to be right here is. Let's take seven steps back and think about, wait, are they really conflicting or are they asking different questions? And I think much more often than we accept, there's all kinds of polysemy and different questions being asked in the scientific enterprise. And again, cartography has done a really beautiful job at showing how different map projections needn't conflict. They are just showing the world in different ways. Mm. Could you give an illustration of that? Because that's a very important, I mean, I don't know if you want to say every conflict can be resolved in this way by going back seven steps. No. I'm not, I'm not I don't want to push don't. you there. I don't know if that's a possible position or not. I agree. But anyway. I agree. Uh, where, I'll give you two weeks. Yeah. I'll give ahead. you two. Can I give you? Yeah. 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 No, go ahead. Give, so you know, I'll give show two how, examples. One I know, is that what you want? Yeah. 
Okay, one example I think is in the entire group selection debates, um, which has been going on still for thirty years. But I oh, think I see. Well, I, least, I was thinking um, of a map. I think by now a, there's. A, oh. I was thinking of sure. where I mean, map people uh, have uh, conflicted and then resolved their differences by looking at the different uh, processes of either calibration of units or data collection or uh, portrayal, Sorry, and then Carrie. resolved yes. the conflict between the apparent conflict. Right. So all the so you're saying. Yeah, when there are conflicts in these different, Correct. you know, sort of partial representations. So, yeah. Yes, I hear you now. Um, there was a big brouhaha, <laughs> at least in the public understanding of cartography. Cartographers are less willing to say that they had too much of an internal brouhaha around the Mercator projection and Arno Peters's projection in the 70s. Uh-huh. And there was... There was this, pol- okay, so the Mercator projection is a standard projection. Most of us, including probably 90% of the, I don't know, I hate, I should, I should be careful making predictions with numbers, um, of the listeners have seen where, you know, Greenland is huge. Um, Sweden looks as big as Mexico, even though Sweden is a quarter of the size of Mexico. Hmm. And Africa and Greenland look about the same size, even though Africa is 14 times larger than Greenland. <laughs> Africa is the second largest continent on the planet after Asia, a fact most people do not know or have forgotten they knew. Um, <laughs> so these kinds of spatial distortions, Arno Peters, who's a German cartographer slash philosopher slash savant, um, in the 70s, started making a big deal about and He got a lot of attention. I think some of it is reasonable. Some of it is maybe a little exaggerated, where he said, the Mercator is colonialist. It's wrong. It shows Europe as immense. And that's kind of the North-South dominance, the political, which we haven't gotten into at all yet. And I'm sorry, because I also think of my book as kind of political in, in, in the end. And, um, and, and so Peter's critiqued the Mercator. And then he said that he had come up with the right single projection. And that's called the Peters projection, but it's really the Gall Peters. I don't want to get into the weeds again, but there was a, um, a clergyman, I believe he was in the 19th century, who was from the United Kingdom, who um, had, had himself, he, he wrote, he drew, and he wrote out um, the description of this projection. And, but Peters wanted to take the name for himself. And anyone, you know, can just Google Peters projection. It's P-E-T-E-R-S. And you'll see that it's kind of a strange shape. Um, and it is in my book towards the end in the appendix. And, but what it does is it has the area correct. But it massively distorts shape. So the Mercator projection is terrible at preserving area, but it's awesome at preserving shape. And that's in part, and there's, this is arguable, and I know there are historians of cartography that have taken me a little bit to task about the book, but I think there's an, I can argue, I'm happy to argue with them. Um, Mercator was used for navigation. 
and it's used for navigating on the seas. And it's keep shape because it saves angles. It's what's called a conformal projection. So it's not an equal area projection like the Gall Peters is, but it's a conformal projection, meaning same angle on your compass and taking your arm and drawing a line in your imagined space towards the horizon mm. will match the line on the map on Mercator. So it's great for navigating, but it's terrible at saving areas. And it's kind of, what was interesting is that Peters made this huge conflict about Mercator versus Peters. And then the cartographic establishment, as it were, and um, there's a cartographer called Dennis Wood, who has a great analysis in his book, um, The Revisiting the Power of Maps, where the cartographic establishment got very upset with Peters. And, but instead of say, instead of then defending Mercator, it just said flat square maps are useless. So there's even, there's even articles and I can cite them. Um, and, and Arthur Robinson was important in this. He was, he's sometimes called the Dean of Cartography of North America. They, they the American Association of Cartography um, wrote uh, there were a whole, let me see if I can find these. They wrote uh, that flat maps were just terrible. Whereas, no, it's, but then after the brouhaha kind of relaxed a bit, then pe- people went back to saying, no, every map, it's not really a conflict. Different maps um, will save and emphasize different features of the um metric properties of maps Mm -hmm. you cannot have a perfect map because you're trying to take a curved surface on the globe and making it flat that is impossible how about a globe metrically impossible great question i get this a lot too the problem (laughs) with a globe yes a globe is pretty good but you can't scale up a globe the globe by definition has extremely little data on it. You would need a globe as big as the earth or even somewhat as big as the earth. And that's just not really possible. And you can't make a part of a globe because then you get all these metric distortions back again. Hmm. So, okay. A globe is not going to save you. Yeah. (laughs) What can save you? Yeah. What can save you? And this is interesting. Is GIS is a a lot of the... uh, Yes, a lot of the electronic modern mapping, and that's something, I guess, now 45 minutes into the, <laughs> that we should probably get to. Well, actually, that, is, that was you. kind of where I was going to go because, um, uh, you know, with GIS now, I mean, as you mentioned in the yes. book, I mean, you've got, you know, you've got a huge, you know, uh, I don't know is, you know, complete or nearly complete or anyway, huge data set. And from that very same data set, you can generate lots of different, you know, maps or representations. And so the, the, uh, the motivation or, um, um, yeah, I guess motivation for pernicious reification is somewhat lessened because you're aware 
that you know the there's this data set and your map is one way of projecting it and so you're not going to mistake your map for the you know the way things like really are because you know well there's this massive data set and that's really what's doing the work so to speak um so i mean is that would that be a correct way of saying what gis has done or gps and you know the basically you know computer computers <laughs> um, have changed how maps how, how cartographers and then have you know think about their maps i mean does that prevent the sorts of uh uh you know controversies that we have with mercator peters or um uh dawkins and you know other people with genetics you you did you kind of went into that but not not as much um uh will that way of thinking right uh prevent the pernicious reification or at least help us avoid it to a greater extent yes um the uh <laughs> very interesting questions um I, I, one of the people writing the blurb in the book is the founder of Esri, which is by far the biggest producer and uh, market share company of GIS on the planet. And I met him by chance in a cafe in San Francisco, and I was wearing a map shirt. And he was, I didn't know it was him at the time. He was sitting right next to me. I was with a friend and I guess he was with his wife as I found out later. And he just started talking to me. He just like, wait, where's that shirt? And it was a shirt of Southern France, um, topographic map. And I just started talking to him. And then I asked him who he was or something. And he <laughs> said, oh, I'm Jack Dangermond. And then I, I kind of got power. What's the word? Um, star, Tongue, starstruck. Because yeah. I mean, I know who he is. And uh -huh. um, I said, wait. You're Jack Dangermond of Esri. And then he laughed and he's like, yes. Um, and then we had a good chat and he was very nice. And, I, you know, I was, uh, he invited me down to Redlands where Esri is. Um, I couldn't make it at the time teaching and then COVID, et cetera. But, you know, hopefully maybe in the future. And um, he wrote a really nice blurb about, the, you know, what that the book also speaks to GIS and some of what I, I know, I'm, maybe I'm over-interpreting what he writes. You can read it. Um, obviously, the reader can read it for themselves. Um, GIS helps, but it's not going to solve these problems intrinsically because I think a little bit, it puts more responsibility on the user. The user needs to know now how to use this very rich multidimensional, both literally and metaphorically, uh, database and mapping strategy. And, and like with any database, I, look, ArcGIS by Esri is a wonderful tool, but, you know, it has certain symbols and it doesn't have other symbols. And yes, you can make your own and this and that, but you need to now become a cartographer. So what do you do? Is that, is that necessarily going to avoid pernicious reification? Well, yeah, I think it's going to help, but that's only if the user is willing to put in effort and work to really try to understand what the map is about. 
And that's a little bit like, you know, philo- analogy, philosopher or philosopher of science or, um, or say, philosopher of psychology, philosopher of mind, trying to figure out, wait, what are these scientists doing? What are these psychologists and neuroscientists doing? We need, the user in GIS needs to now know how to use GIS. And they're not, look, I, Google Maps makes all kinds of mistakes still. You need to know how to use it. Um, it you can still confuse map and world. And, but it certainly, I do think it's helped make us a little more, uh, as a society or societies, make us more map attuned and map knowledgeable but there's still all kinds of integration platforms that need to be built. We still need to do our assumption uh, analysis, what I call assumption archaeology. But I know we're running a little short of time, so I'm, I'm happy to stop talking. Yeah, right no, now that's really well. And hear it, your reactions. It it made me think of you know when you said earlier about the 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 processes you know that cartographers focus on, you know, you know, choosing, calibrating the units, you know, collecting the data and then, you know, portraying them. And it just made me wonder maybe, um, the way uh, the, the difficulties of like building a map, all the, the backstory that goes on, it's, uh, you know, GIS, maybe it, um, it just puts weight on um, uh, it, in a way, once you've kind of written the program, you know, that collects the data, you know, then you've got to make all these choices about yes. representation. Whereas yes. previ- previously, Correct. Uh, you had, you chose your units, you put a lot of effort into that you put a lot of effort into collecting the data on the basis and then the map just kind of fell out of that. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Right. So again, like with so much in modern life, the consumer becomes the, has to become kind of a local expert Mm. on whatever it is, whatever fancy and, and powerful tool, their computational tool they're given. Genetic ancestry tests. I know we're not talking about that, but that is also in my next book. When you have to, you send in your saliva. I haven't done it yet, but I probably should. You send in your saliva to 23andMe, and then you get back this readout. I mean, sure, people can maybe just interpret that without knowing anything about genetics. But I think a company like that owes it to the consumer, and they do it partly, to tell them how to interpret this. But that, again, is, uh, also means that the consumer has to become a local expert in how to interpret genetic data, just like with GIS. We're also be having to become these kind of local experts in how to interpret GIS data, lest we end up confusing and conflating mm. this information with the world. I mean, I still think there's a lot of opportunities, unfortunately, for pernicious reification. And actually, I am both politically and just in general quite worried about people over reading their genetic ancestry data. Mm. 
just like with GIS. I don't know. Maybe I know right. I'm, I'm, I'm deviating a bit. Right. Well, that's okay. Um, so let me, let me just, uh, well, what to you, I mean, we've, uh, the book is, you know, full of different maps. I mean, it goes into, you know, really interesting aspects of cartography as well as the implications and so forth. What to you, what's your, what's your favorite mm -hmm. map? What's your, the coolest map for you? <laughs> That's a cute question. Oh my God. Um, you didn't prepare me for this question. Um, okay. Gosh. Can I really choose any? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Go ahead. Does it have to be a literal map or can, can it no. be one, well, one of the other maps? You don't know. Okay. I don't know. Well, I'll say one thing and I'm not trying to be precious, but uh, because of my pluralism, I'm having a really hard time choosing because there's so many, what I think, interesting maps that show interesting points. But if you wake me up at two in the morning and ask me, what <laughs> is my favorite map? Then, did you want to say something? No, I'm waiting. Okay, I'm going to give you one. Good. I, I think it's plate not. Okay, plate nine, uh -huh. which is Mary Tharp's, I think, amazing map of the Indian Ocean floor, which is a perspective map. It's a perspective panorama, I call it, in my one of my publications, mapping the deep blue oceans. I think that map, it blows my mind every time I look at it. Uh, can I... Yeah. Wax poetic for a minute or no? Yes, sure. Carrie? Yeah. No, please wax, wax away. Okay. Um, the, first of all, Mary Tharp's biography is extremely interesting and is, I think, a prime case of an amazing woman in science who, for various personal, political, at historical reasons was um, experienced, you know, sexism in science, there's no doubt. And, and who yet managed to draw these amazing maps that of the ocean floors, probably many readers have seen in National Geographic, um, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge map. And again, I, I, I could go on for hours. I have written several papers on her on her work um but she was really important in 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 establishing continental drift uh helping establish con the the sort of veracity of continental drift theory in the 60s and 70s and the indian ocean floor map is a beautiful map showing both the highest and the lowest um places on earth i.e the himalayas and the dead sea and um, and then the entire bottom of the Indian Ocean floor, as if you're looking at it from space, but kind of warped. It's not really from space because the way it's warped, it's obviously not a globe. But it's a perfectly, it's almost artistic rendition because it's not an exact mathematical well, you can do a mathematical model of, of the projection she's using, but it's, it's kind of a funky one. It, it's, not a, it's not a typical 
and I don't want to get into details as to why right here. It's not a typical projection. Um, but it kind of shows you the earth from a whole other point of view, a little bit like blue marble or, you know, some of the Apollo, um, other Apollo pictures did of the earth. And, you know, I was barely, I wasn't born when, um, this is 1967 issue, but I'm sure when people saw this for the first time, and certainly when I saw it for the first time, it kind of blow, it kind of makes you rethink the earth in its entirety. And I don't know. And I just like that combination of Tharp's artistry, her biography, the oceans. And that's going to be my next book after the genes. If I ever finish the genes book, I will. Well, it's in production, but who knows how long that'll take. And um, yeah, that's kind of, that's one favorite map. And I wanted something like it on the cover. And, and Chicago did a beautiful job with the front cover. It was actually their idea. I think they did a fantastic job. We couldn't agree. I sent them some covers. They didn't like them. They sent me a first cover. I thought it was totally antiquated and antiquarian. Um, and then they came up with the cover as it is now. And it took me 13 seconds to look at it when they sent it to me back in, I think, 2019. I looked at it and I was just like, wow, this is beautiful. Excellent. Um, yeah. So, okay. So we are, we are out of time now. Um, and you've, uh, you know, I like to end by asking what you're working on, but, um, in a way you've already given us that, right? You're, you're working on a book that's closer in philosophy of biology or genetics, right? Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, it's called Our Genes and it's scheduled to be out early 2022. Excellent. Well, um, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with new books and philosophy about, uh, about your new book or the latest one anyway, when maps become the world. And uh, uh, good luck with the, with the work that's, that's coming out and you know, how you continue on this same sort of very, very interesting journey. Um, so goodbye for now and uh, good luck. Thank you, Carrie. And thank you for all your hard work also okay. on, this is a great podcast. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Rasmus Granfeld Winter, Professor of Humanities at University of California at Santa Cruz. We've been talking about his new book, When Maps Become the World, which is just out from University of Chicago Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books and Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.